Approach pain relief from the ground up with Curex. Curex makes highly customizable over-the-counter insoles thanks to their dynamic arch technology, which provides different support for different arch types. They were developed by German scientists for the specific foot movements of various activities delivering the right support and cushion where it's needed the most. Curex makes the largest selection of activity-specific insoles for running, hiking, golfing, biking, soccer, tennis, or solely for walking and everyday wear. That's the Curex difference, and it can make a difference for your patients. For a free sample, email curexinside at curex.us. That's C-U-R-R-E-X inside at curex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. If you thought concussion was all about the big hits to athletes' heads in collision sports like rugby or American football, then think again. Dr. Kerry Peake, physiotherapist, strength and conditioning coach, researcher and educator from the University of Sydney joins us today to talk about concussion in football or soccer. Dr. Peake is part of a growing international group of researchers, clinicians, athletes and coaches who are recognising the risks of repeated heading in football and working together to figure out the best strategies to protect the health of the next generation of young football players. Welcome to JOSPT Insights and thanks for taking the time today, Kerry. Thank you very much for having me. Today we're tackling concussion in youth sport. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how big the problem is, Kerry? If we look at a lot of the, the literature, we'll see that there is a, a growing incidence of concussion, particularly in, in youth athletes. But I don't know that it, it is necessarily growing. I think that we have really done well at, at advertising, well, I suppose marketing the fact that this is an issue and encouraging athletes and parents and coaches to, to recognise, you know, the signs and symptoms of concussion and, and really take it seriously. So I think the reporting of concussion has increased, but I'm not so sure that the incidence has increased, um, particularly in the youth space. Although if we do look into adults, I mean, our, our athletes, particularly in con- con- um, contact and collision sports are generally, you know, hits are much harder and the athletes are stronger and faster so that there is you know possibly a true increase but I think a lot of it is due to the fact that there is more reporting and recognizing in some ways the increased incidence is a good thing because we're 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 not ignoring it anymore. And do we know anything about the rates of concussion? Are there differences among girls and boys? There does seem to be. So there seems to be a higher rate in girls, um, in, in youth athletes as well as in adult athletes. And, um, and it seems to be that, that females take longer to recover from concussion as well. And have we got a sense of why that might be, Kerry? Any sort of risk factors that we can identify that are different between girls and boys that might explain some of the discrepancy in, in prevalence or incidence? It's not uncommon, particularly at child and youth sport level, to see that boys start to specialise earlier than a number of the girls. Girls may do sort of lots of gymnastic type sports early on, and then they may start to then get into football or soccer or play rugby later. So some of it is technique driven. Um, some of it, I think, are very much biological factors, um, particularly once the boys start to go through puberty, that you know, see that the differences in strength and their muscular development 
When we think of concussion, I think what probably comes to mind are those kind of big hits to the head that we see in the collision sports like rugby, American football, Australian football. We don't necessarily think of soccer or football as a collision sport or a sport where concussion is a big issue, but your work is really centred and focused on football or soccer. So can you share with us what's different about football and soccer and why concussion is a serious issue that we need to think about in soccer or football? I mean, to give you a little bit of background, I mean, I did start in rugby. Um, when I first graduated as a physiotherapist, I worked with the formerly England rugby physio and we did a lot of work in neck strengthening then. And then oh, seven years ago, my son started playing football and I watched him head the ball. And I was thinking back to all that work we did in rugby and then thinking, actually, are these football players really conditioned to be taking these repetitive head impacts during heading of the ball, particularly as he was eight years old. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, he hasn't even started doing any strength and conditioning, let alone this ball hitting his head repetitively. It's starting to gain a lot of momentum at the moment and there's a lot of emotion that's attached to heading in football because we don't really know what the long-term consequences are of, of heading, but there's enough evidence there to suspect that it could mental effects to some athletes with their long-term brain health. If we're going to expect our, our football players to, to head the ball, then it's really important that we're looking at primary prevention strategies that we can make this action safer, particularly in our, our youth athletes. How many times in a match, in an average match, would a player head a ball? So, so that's a really, really interesting question. So we've just published a couple of studies where we've looked at heading in boys football aged between sort of 10 and 12 and then in youth footballs from 13 to, to 20. And this was in Australia and we, we worked with a fantastic team of researchers that were also part of the UEFA heading study. So we're able to compare our data in Australia to data in Europe. In Australia, we our players don't seem to head the ball as much as they do in, in Europe. So England seem to be the, the, the players that head the ball with the most frequency. And we only collected data in, in matches. And the main findings are that some players head the ball a lot more than others. So defenders head the ball a lot more than attackers and midfielders will head the ball sort of somewhere in the middle. So there are obviously players at risk of high, having higher number of um, head impacts. You know, you may find that defenders could be heading the ball 20 times per match and another player, um, like a goalkeeper, may not head the ball at all or you may have a few attackers or some other uh, midfielders who are heading the ball a handful of times. Now, this may not be a big deal in a single match, but the accumulation over the course of a career, makes it between maybe a few hundred headers to several thousand headers. Kerry, how do these kids learn the skills of heading or do they learn the skills of heading? Because we know that in many cases, kids as young as six and eight can be coming into these football academies. Are they starting to learn heading at that young age or is that something that's happening later? So I can only really speak for Australia and heading is mentioned in the football curriculum here, but there, it's actually not contained in any of the coaching courses. So from my experience, um, either as a physio or watching, you know, family members play, that, that they're really not taught how to head the ball or if they are, it's very club dependent. Certainly my understanding of um of teaching heading technique across the, the world, again, it tends to be, you know, very isolated. There may be pockets or that they're practising heading drills without necessarily teaching technique. And 
technique is really, really important. So at the moment, I'm collecting a lot of head acceleration data in youth athletes here in Australia. And, and even just subjectively, you can see the difference between someone who has good heading technique and someone who has really terrible heading technique. And so it, it is a really important aspect to teach. And this is what concerns me about some of the heading guidelines that are being implemented around the world is that if you, if you take out the ability for the coach to teach technique, and if we're not teaching coaches how to, to train players to have good heading technique, but allowing players, especially youth um, players, to head the ball in games, then, then they won't know how to head the ball safely. And there, there is a big difference between heading the ball with a strong, stiff, activated neck where you can increase your effective mass and get your body behind the ball versus just putting your head in the way. So is the answer here to ban heading to a certain age, a bit like what they do in Canada in peewee ice hockey, where the kids are not allowed to body check or, you know, they're not allowed to collide with each other under a certain age? Is is that the answer? I think it's actually very difficult to ban something based on chronological age. So if we look at the heading guidelines in the US, they can't head the ball in training or games under the age of um, 10, I believe. And then there's restriction between the ages of 11 and 13. And then there's unrestricted heading for 14. I don't mind that so much. But when I when you, you watch 14-year-olds play at any sport, there's huge variations in the physical capacities of these players. I mean, you know, even just looking at height, some of them, you know, haven't gone through their peak height velocity and very short and slight. Others are much bigger and starting to look like, you know, adults. And so, so that's a difficult age to now say, yes, you can head the ball, particularly if you haven't coached heading. So that's the US model. The guidelines in England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, they have restricted heading in practice, but under the age of, um, I believe it's 11, there's no heading in practice, but you can head the ball in games. That's the bit that really concerns me. But really, I think we need to be restricting heading based on physical characteristics and technical proficiency. And really focusing on those players that head the ball in games, you know, so your defenders, they're the most at risk of any heading related injuries. And so they're the ones that maybe we need to concentrate on first. Let's talk about your work in injury prevention, because I think that's where we're where we're kind of headed with our conversation here is that if we're going to say we're not going to ban it, we don't necessarily think that stopping people arbitrarily from doing a particular skill is perhaps the right way to go about it, but perhaps teaching people, giving them good techniques and doing some injury prevention work might be a more appropriate way to tackle, if I can use that word, tackle this problem. So Kerry, can you talk a little bit about what sorts of injury prevention programs are out there and what sorts of things you would suggest that clinicians might consider to put into practice in a team environment? As we know, with with all exercise programs, they're not created equally. So it's really important implementing a primary prevention strategy which does focus on, on exercise is that you really have a good understanding of the sport and the player position and what you're actually trying to achieve. So if it's heading of the ball, for example, then the actual head impact or ball-to-head impact happens over a fraction of a second. I think it's about 15 milliseconds. So you can have as strong a neck as you like, but if you can't recruit those muscles quickly, it's probably not going to make a difference. So we do need to focus on sort of isometric control but with ballistic intent. Those are the exercises we need to focus on. And so if we're looking across the literature 
to say, well, doesn't next gen thing work? Does it, you know, doesn't it work? It's usually because the exercises have been inappropriate for the for the, the sport, um, which is why they haven't shown an effect. So I'm not saying that next gen thing is the, the panacea for concussion. I, I think it needs to sit within a you know a raft of different measures, but I 100 percent do think that next strengthening is part of the puzzle. And it really is the only part of the body that we don't really consider. I mean, we would go, you know, we'd send out somebody out who'd had a knee injury without strengthening the knee and conditioning the knee and taking them through the whole phase of program. And yet we will send somebody out, you know, to be tackled by somebody of their equal body weight or to head a ball that's being fired at the, you know, or kicked towards them at 25 kilometers an hour without conditioning the neck and then wonder why we're getting lots of head and neck injuries. Let's walk through what a typical neck strengthening program would look like, Kerry. What sorts of exercises, how frequently and how do you build it into a team training environment? We know implementation of a lot of these injury um, reduction strategies has been quite poor. So we've got to work with our players and our coaches. I mean, that's that's the first thing. We need to get that understanding of why we're implementing these exercises and why they're important. So, so part of my research, which, which isn't published at the moment, but that we've been conducting over the last 18 months is to really refine the exercises so that they don't use equipment, so they take the minimum amount of time, but they, they can show an effect in reducing injury rates. And so what, what we have been doing, and we did a pilot test last year, was implementing two really simple neck exercises, which use body weight. So essentially that the player is rolling on their back and they're trying to stop their head hitting the ground. And so they're really trying to activate their neck really, really quickly. And we implemented those exercises within part two of the FIFA 11. And so they took about 30 seconds to complete, you know, integrated within an already sort of well-established program. And so we implemented this in um, male and female players between the ages of 12 and 17. It was only a five-week program as it was part of a pilot study. But even in five weeks being completed three times a week, we found that there was, you know, really large decrease in head impact magnitude when the players were heading the ball. And we tested this pre and post and we had, you know, an intervention and control group. Kerry, can you walk us through how you test neck strength in the clinic or in the in the sporting rooms or in a research project? When we when we started testing neck strength sort of 20 odd years ago, we had a system that was developed by um, Don Gather in the clinic, and he has since published data on this. So this is a protocol that's been refined over, over 20 years, and this is the testing protocol that I use. So essentially there's two ways that you can test neck strength. You can use a, a mate technique where you push against a dynamometer. Or you can use a brake technique where you have a head harness. You then have a load cell that's in series, and this will either read directly on the load cell or the, the, the dynamometer that we use, it's Bluetooth to a monitor. So that will give me the, the reading. And what you're trying to do is get the, the players so they'll be fixed in sitting. So their, their body is fixed and they need to keep their neck as still as possible. So whether you're testing flexors or extensors or side flexors, they're aiming to keep their head in midline and you are pulling them towards you. And when they can't hold you anymore, they will then move their head and that's the maximal reading. So there are lots of sophisticated ways that you can do it and you can see the the, the curve um, and you can see the rate of force development. I tend to use a very basic system which just gives me that peak score. And the the reason why this is a really good way to to test is that a lot of the programs that you then set the athlete, if the ball is coming 
towards the player, you're really trying to get them to contract and hold their head in an isometric contraction. And so you're actually testing them in the position that you're really going to exercise them. It's, it's a great way to test because you know your, your max score. And if you take a percentage of that to exercise them, they're exercising actually in the same position. They may be standing rather than sitting, but they're upright. So say we're testing the extensors. Is the athlete sitting to, facing towards you or away from you? Which how, how do you position them to test all of these different positions? Yeah, so if we're testing the extensors, we'll have them seated in the chair and we have the plinth in front of them. So they actually lock themselves between the chair and the plinth. And um, if I'm testing a particularly strong athlete, then I'll be the other side of the plinth. I'll be holding the handle of the harness with the low cell in series. And I actually have to usually put my foot on the bed because I usually have to put some of my body weight behind them. Because if, if we were testing, say, adult rugby players, for example, it's not unusual for the extensors to hit peaks of um, 60, 65. I think 82 is the highest um, score we've ever had. So this is in kilos, so 82 kilos. So they're incredibly strong. If we then test into flexion, we move the chair. So again, it's backed up against the plinth. They hold onto the chair so they can fix themselves. In the clinic, we, if we can, we'll actually um, seatbelt them into the chair. Um, and then I pull behind them. So that, again, you're just trying to get them to, to move their head backwards um, once they can't hold that midline. And, and it's incrementally loading. Um, I think most people, when you test them, they're worried that you're suddenly going to pull their head off. But it, it's a very slow incremental loading. And I've tested probably many thousands of players over um, the course of my career and you can feel as soon as I lose midline and you can, you can feel that give almost a bit like when you're doing a, um, an arm wrestle, you know when you've won. You just feel that overpowering. And what's, what's a good score? How do you know if someone's got good strength or adequate strength or someone that you need, you feel like, okay, we need to do some work here, we need to do some next strengthening? That's a great question because when I've been testing, I've been testing youth athletes all week, in fact, and they'll often ask me, is that a good score? And my my answer is usually, I don't know yet. And the reason why I say that is, one, because we still need to fill our bank of normative data, but it's actually the ratio that I'm more in feel is more important. So the flexor extensor ratio. So if their extensors are 50 kilograms, for example, so I tested a, a, a 15-year-old rugby player last week. So 50 on his extensors is really good. But it's only good if his flexors are sitting in that 0.6. So I then tested his flexors and they were sitting at 25. So yes, his extensors will give me the indication that he's a strong lad. But now when I look at his flexors, that's a concern to me because that's now, you know, less than 0.6. So that's the, the first thing I look at. So it may be that a player only has 20 but he's, he's flex, oh, sorry, 20 on his extensors and he may have um, 15 on his flexors. I'm less concerned about that than I am with the player who's got a, a much greater extensor score because we can build strength uniformly. But what we need to do then with the player that has that low ratio is really concentrate on the, the flexors. So I tend to test extensors, flexors, and left and right side flexors. And, and it's looking at the, the balance of all those scores, which will tell me whether they're a good score rather than the, the actual number itself. Let's say you've identified someone who you feel like, okay, we need to work on this ratio. So we're talking about, say, extensor to flexor or flexor to extensor ratio and, and trying to get that to around that 0.6 mark so that you've got a good, stable neck. What sorts of program would you put in place? Where would you start with strengthening the neck? Usually you start by seeing what other exercises they are doing. So 
it, it was surprising to me when I was testing elite rugby players how low some of their flex to expense ratios were. And and then when looking at their general strength and conditioning program and seeing the, you know, the number of sort of shoulder shrugs or other exercises that, that do have carryover into the neck extensors, you know, that sort of started to make sense to me. So what, what we then did is that they still needed to carry on with those exercises because that was part of a bigger program. But it, it then meant that it was important that we didn't add any more extensor exercises to that program. So we tended to then focus very much on the flexors you're generally going to head the ball on the forehead. So it's really the, the neck flexors that, that need to have that, you know, short latency control. So, so generally that's where we're focusing. And can you give us your top three neck strengthening exercises? Which are your go-to top three? So again, it comes down to, to what is the sport and what is the position. So if I was working with uh, rugby union players and you've got your, your forwards who are involved in the scrum, they would do a very different exercise to the backs. So first of all, we generally need to, to have an understanding of what is the sport and you try to get them to exercise in the position, which is very sport specific. So if they are involved in a scrum, we get them in a crouch position and we attach head harnesses to them and loads and bungee cords and things like that so that they're, they're trying to control their neck in the same position that they would be in for the demands of their sport. The, the, the exercises that we've implemented into the FIFA 11 plus at the moment are my absolute top favourite exercise at the moment. I think they, they, they give the best bang for buck in terms of no equipment, easy, and they're quick. And I think in the, in the youth athlete space, these are fantastic. They're probably not hard enough once you get to rugby players or American football players that are sort of 15, um, 16 plus, and they're probably not hard enough for, for adults, but certainly as a, a foundation exercise, they're perfect. And then I do tend to use head harnesses and, and bungee cords. And what, what's really important with most sports is that the exercise should be isometric. So you're loading them very high. So you might be loading 75, 80% of their one met max, but you're not moving the neck. But you do need some ballistic type intent. So if you would, if you're using head harnesses, you're doing very fast contractions. So trying to activate those muscles quickly, but within an isometric, under isometric conditions. Now, Kerry, let's finish off by talking about some of the upcoming research. And, and I know you're working incredibly hard on a, on a program of research tackling this really important issue. So what can we look forward to in the future from your research and perhaps other research projects that are going on internationally? So so much of my research is, is focused on, on heading in football. So we've, we've put together sort of a series of projects really to look at, you know, what are the, the influences when you when you head the ball. So getting athletes into the lab to see, you know, is there a difference between males and females? Is there an age difference? Is there a, a difference if the ball is at 8 PSI versus 15 PSI, which are the upper and lower ends of the International Football Association board, you know, match ball pressures? Is there a difference depending on neck strength? Can we influence any of the head impact magnitude during heading by implementing neck exercises and and then trying to drill down what those exercises look like and how often should they be completed is three times a week enough but do we need to do it more than that or less than that so it, it, it really is sitting in that 
primary prevention space. So particularly talking about heading, I mean, there may become a time where the the evidence is so overwhelming that heading needs to be banned across the board. You know, I'm open to that possibility, but I don't think we're there yet. And I don't think anything's going to change in the sport for a number of years. And so what I think is most important is we put as many safety strategies in place now because we don't want to miss a generation of players by not doing anything. And so we need to understand that basic science of heading. We need to put strategies in place to to really protect this generation and future generations of players while we still discuss whether heading should be part of the game or not. Absolutely. Really important messages and I think a perfect place for us to end our chat today. Kerry, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on JOSPT Insights. I think this is a fantastic um, platform to get the, the message across. So I really, really thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.